This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. The state of EM. Welcome back. If you are a regular listener on our podcast, you have probably heard our September podcast, The Alexandria Story. In that podcast, we explored the roots, the history of the specialty of emergency medicine with Dr. Brian Zink. And if you haven't listened, go back and listen to it now. You can find that episode and all of our episodes on iTunes or on ucdavisem.com. Brian literally wrote the textbook on the history of emergency medicine. Anyone, anything, anytime, a history of emergency medicine. Yeah, that was a really fun podcast because we heard the recorded voices of some of the founders of emergency medicine. And they were a scrappy bunch for sure. They saw a need in medicine and filled it. They fought tooth and nail to do what they thought was right. That episode was part one in a three-part series on the past, present, and future of emergency medicine. Today, we'll hear from other leaders on the current state of emergency medicine, such as what is our role? How has that changed with COVID, and what are the challenges we face as a specialty? Sarah, the crazy thing is, is that we've actually recorded this very podcast on the state of emergency medicine in March. I know, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) But COVID has changed everything in so many ways. We just had to scrap it and re-record this to see what the current state is as of November 2020. So to do that, we interviewed four leaders in emergency medicine with different perspectives and asked them some tough questions about where we are now as a specialty. Let's get started. Okay, how exactly has COVID changed emergency medicine as a specialty? COVID has really been life-changing, I think, for all Americans, but really from emergency medicine. I mean, we are in the spotlight like never before. We have been challenged like never before. And I... That is the voice of Dr. Amy Moulin, professor of emergency medicine and psychiatry at UC Davis, previous Cal ASAP president, behavioral health director, and a director of California Bridge, You probably recognize her as a regular on this podcast. We just had to include her in this endeavor. And I so love my colleagues in emergency medicine because I think we took this role and we ran with it. I mean, everywhere you looked, emergency medicine was the face of our COVID response. But it came from a place where I think we realized that we're on our own. Before COVID, I think we sort of felt like our hospitals protected us. I think we felt like our employers protected us. And I think that we were a little complacent. And I think that what we saw from COVID is that nobody has our back. And so we're really on our own and we really have to be out there speaking up and protecting ourselves. What is in the best interest of the hospital and what is in the best interest of the employer is not necessarily what is in the best interest of me as an emergency physician. First, it's just PPE. It's not having what you need to do your job in a very basic, very real way of not having enough masks in order to provide care for patients safely for yourself and your family. And then the act of saying, hey, this is a problem. You often were saying things that the hospital didn't like, that your employer didn't like. And there was some retribution. And so sort of realizing we're on our own. 
I think one of the most obvious changes has been our growth with telemedicine and recognizing that we are no longer a location, right? We are a specialty. And that is the voice of Dr. Jillian Schmitz, the 2020 ASEP president-elect. Dr. Schmitz is an associate professor at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, and she works clinically at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. We are not a room or even a department. We are experts in acute unscheduled care that now really transcends the four walls of a hospital. And I think that what would have taken us decades to accomplish, we've been able to do in a matter of weeks um, and really expanding our, our outreach, which has been impressive. I think COVID has had a number of other impacts on us as a specialty. I think with the loss of Dr. Lorna Breen this year, it has really raised to the forefront the issue of physician suicide and mental health and well-being and recognizing that 400 physicians commit suicide every year, which is double the amount of what the public is. And this has really drawn attention of that we need to take care of ourselves in addition to our patients. And I think it's really brought to the forefront our ability to take back the white hat. You know, for years, we've been criticized of, of being too expensive and that we're costing the healthcare system. And I think COVID has really changed the way that we are perceived of really now being heroes and healers uh, to understand that we're putting ourselves in the front line here, that we are risking ourselves and our families uh, to really take care of patients and that that is our mission to take care of anyone, anywhere, anytime. In reality, COVID is just one of many series of epidemics, pandemics that we have experienced as a discipline. Dr. Cherry Hobgood is a professor of emergency medicine and past chair at Indiana University. She's a former chair of the board of ASEP and a previous president of SAEM. I'm old. I remember HIV's emergence in emergency medicine and the emergence of then universal precautions and how that changed our daily work in the emergency department. COVID is going to do a very similar thing. Everyone who's actively engaged in emergency medicine practice today has changed the way they work, the way that they utilize their personal protective equipment, the way they approach patients, the way patients are triaged and cared for in our emergency departments. It's also going to change our patients' perceptions of us because patients now see us in a very different light. They recognize the risk that we are uh, engaging in and taking on as providers, and they're grateful for that. We've seen an incredible emergence of technology utilization, and it has penetrated all providers and many, many patients that previously would not have utilized technology or have been comfortable utilizing technology. Now they're able to access someone, um, whether that's their primary care provider, a subspecialist, a nurse practitioner, and get a preliminary workup started for us prior to arriving in the ED. Next up is the voice of Dr. Joseph Adrian Tyndall. He is professor and chair of emergency medicine at University of Florida College of Medicine, the interim dean of the College of Medicine there, the associate vice president for academic and strategic affairs of the University of Florida Health, and the immediate past chair of the Florida chapter of ASAP. So I think it's a really interesting question. And, you know, Dr. Zink, who's a very good friend of mine, had talked really about the history of, of emergency medicine and emergency medicine as a safety net for our system. 
I mean, I think it's been no more demonstrated than in the pandemic that we've actually seen. For the first time in such clarity, the nation's system of emergency care has been brought front and center in terms of understanding the sacrifice of the caregivers, of our providers, of emergency physicians in supporting the response. But more importantly, I think the demonstration of heroism that we've actually seen every single day that this pandemic has actually occurred, I think is really an important reminder about where emergency medicine assists within our system. You probably heard from Brian Zink that it was created not because a number of people got together and thought this is just a great specialty to create, but it was born because of a need within our system and society. And I think, again, today, we saw that need demonstrated more clearly than ever. And I think that it's an important lesson that emergency care is not something that we really can take for granted. Okay, what is the role of emergency medicine to the healthcare system and beyond that to our patients? We are a young specialty, right? And it has evolved so much. When you think about where we started, we were kind of the back door side room of the hospital with kind of just a bunch of moonlighters. And that's where we started. And it's really evolved We've really grown. We are kind of the diagnosticians of medicine. We are the gatekeepers to our hospitals. We are the gatekeepers to specialty care. We are safety net providers. We're called on to address social problems, homelessness, food insecurity, abuse, incarceration, like all of these problems that are endemic in our society kind of land on our doorsteps. And I think one of the tensions of our specialty is that the role that we're asked to play is evolved in ways we're not prepared for. And it's sort of that mismatch of expectations and the reality that I think kind of drives that angst and I think even burnout. And I think that's why we kind of keep coming back to this question, isn't it? But you know, I always think like, if you look at the patients who arrive on your doorstep and what needs they are bringing to us, those are the resources that we should be asking for. When someone needs something, we are where they turn. Our colleagues in primary care, if they have a patient who they feel needs something and they're not able to meet those needs, those patients come to us. When patients wake up and they say, I don't really know what to do, they come to us. And so we're really the safety net for everybody, including our colleagues. But I think it's okay. I mean, I think that's the thing that we need to do is say like, hey, it's a good role. It's an okay role. It's the role that society wants us to play. We're good at it. So let's do it. You know, let's just look around and say like, hey, what do I need to do this better? And I think that we will all have a lot better satisfaction. We have such an interesting role where we're really primely integrated in that intersection between acute care, chronic care, public health. And where we used to be really glorified triage right before emergency medicine was a specialty and they would call, you know, whoever was working that day, we recognized that need 70 years ago for specific training in emergency medicine for the undifferentiated patient. And then we transitioned to this role of sort of a gatekeeper and realizing that inpatient care is very expensive. So if we had a good emergency medicine department, we could kind of screen out those people who need to be admitted versus those that we can get outpatient follow-up. I think now we've really transitioned to a role 
of care coordination across the entire healthcare spectrum, that we're realizing that so much of people's health, in even in an emergency, is about their social needs, inequities of care, of making sure that we are providing not just emergency care, but really helping them get those community resources to address all the social determinants of health. And I think that's going to be a growing role for emergency medicine. Emergency medicine is the primary access point for healthcare in this country. I believe that it always has been, at least for the last, as long as I've been practicing, the last 20 years. We will always be the people who respond to acute and undifferentiated care. How does insurance honestly shape the way our patients are treated? I would love to say it doesn't matter at all, but we know that it does. My husband is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and in San Antonio, he is one of the only peds ortho specialists that takes Medicaid. And so when we have kids who fall off the monkey bars and break their arms, although we're going to treat everyone with respect and make sure they're all good care, the the reality is that not everyone's going to get the same follow-up. And depending if you are uninsured or underinsured, you may not be able to get in to see an orthopedist a neurologist, or even sometimes a primary care physician, or the wait may be so long that their condition is going to get significantly worse. So I think this does change the way we approach people, um, both into our consultation and to their follow-up. I think it also, again, kind of points to their, their social determinants of health and what other factors are going to be influencing their ability to care for their condition. Can they pay for their medications? You know, how often do we actually look at cost? Are you going to be able to get that outpatient stress test or other additional workup you may not be able to? And other things like mental health, substance abuse that play such a role into people's health, particularly in people who are uninsured or underinsured because they just don't have the resources to get the right care. So I'd like to say that we treat everybody the same, but we know looking at our own data that there are discrepancies there, there's inequities, and part of it is our own implicit bias that we may not recognize, but there are many studies that show that we tend to treat people differently based on what they look like, and that if they don't have insurance, unfortunately, they have a much higher mortality. They tend to use the ED more for care because they may not have other places to go. And we need to recognize that this is more than just, you know, life-threatening emergency care. Emergency medicine really encompasses, to some degree, those exacerbations of chronic diseases, but also of public health, which brings them into our departments for us to care for them. We are kind of the great equalizer. We are the one safe space where people who maybe don't have adequate insurance can still actually get in front of a doctor. But everywhere else, yeah, insurance plays 100% of the role of how patients are able to access care. I think a lot of my frustration with their current health insurance system is, who is it working for? It's working as far as I can tell for the insurance companies. Certainly not working for the patients. Certainly not working for doctors. As far as I can tell, it's not working for hospitals. It's not working for employers who are paying high premiums. So who is it really working for? What is it that we are doing right now? that is working so well for anyone other than an insurance company. What is our role in treating non-emergent illnesses? For example, if a test was denied by an insurance company and a patient comes in asking for that test to be done here. I think, you know, a lot of it is is listening to them of what is their expectation and why. Um, the number of times when I really take that extra 30 seconds, it's because their mom died of a heart attack at the same day. And they think, well, gosh, if I get this done today, then I will prevent that. And it's addressing sort of the psychological components of what brings them into the ED. 
And sometimes it's just helping them understand, like we literally do not have an MRI, you know, to do these sort of diagnoses. And this has to be orchestrated with your primary care physician and, and helping to try to reset those expectations. But when I really get down to it, I think the majority of those cases tend to be driven by fear and anxiety, which is paramount right now in the middle of a pandemic where people have a lot of concerns and uncertainty. And really what they're doing is they're looking for answers. They want reassurance on some level that they're not dying, um, that they're going to be okay. And sometimes even if we can't give them that definitive answer, I think just listening and holding their hand and reassuring them that there is a process and there is a way to get them that sort of reassurance addresses 95% of those cases. So these ones are hard for me partially because to some extent, it's a little bit outside of what I know how to do. Some of the working up of the long-term conditions, I don't actually know what the right thing is. Like, did the insurance company deny that MRI because really it's not needed? It's a little tiny bit outside my scope. Do I have someone who comes in who has maybe not ever seen an endocrinologist and probably really does need to see an endocrinologist? Do I call them to see the patient while they're in the ED or do I call for recommendations? Yeah, I do that. And I do participate sometimes if the person who knows what the next step is, is the primary care doctor, sends them in or, or lets me know like, hey, I really need this to happen for my patient. Do I participate in that? Oh, yeah, absolutely I do. But I try not to make those decisions on my own because I also recognize I don't really know what the next best step is for some of the chronic illnesses out there. And in my mind, there's three different reasons, right, that people come in for non-emergent care. One is that sort of entitled patient that just doesn't want to wait and wants to get the studies done in the ER that have sort of unrealistic expectations. But I think that's a really small percentage. The other two groups are people who don't have access, so they can't get in to see their primary care. They don't have a primary care doctor. And by the time they can get in to see one, their condition's going to get significantly worse. And then the third part are people who are not sure if they have an emergency or not, which is a lot of people that are the undifferentiated patients who have symptoms, concerns that relate, and they're relying on us to sort of evaluate and, and make that decision of whether they need to be seen or not. And so particularly for those last two groups, I think that it's really important that we look at this through a broader lens and realize that we take care of the undifferentiated patient. The patients are not educated to the same way we are to know what is an emergency and what's not. Part of this is driven by economics. Part of it's driven by cultural kind of health literacy, a number of other things of what brings them in. But I think if we take that very narrow view that I'm only going to take care of life-threatening emergencies, uh, you're going to be out of a job pretty quickly. <laughs> Should we screen for medical conditions such as HIV, mental health, opiate addiction, and why or why not? I have always looked at emergency medicine as a window out of the world, right? So we are the sensory apparatus for society when we begin to think about what might be going wrong or understanding emerging diseases, for instance, or emerging trends. Because so many people receive care out of our delivery system every year, I almost think it's a responsibility in some ways to all kinds of things that have happened in the recent past, you know, whether it's a, a pandemic flu, as, as we've seen more recently, or maybe novel drugs of abuse, you know, um, and we begin to see the uptick of, of the use and the impact first in our emergency care systems and nowhere else. So I think we almost have an obligation or a responsibility to screen, to assess to understand what's happening, I think, in, in society, and then 
I think we're at the front lines, probably in the best position also to help create the solutions or to help to convey or contribute to those solutions. Because I think we are seeing it from a vantage point that no other part of the health system truly sees it. Should we try to identify and treat potentially life-threatening illnesses in our patient population? Yes, absolutely we should. And I think that everybody deep down thinks that we should be doing this, right? And even the people who say no, if you dig in, they're saying no because they don't think that we have the resources to do it, right? And so I think like, let's just stop with that fight and say, hey, we know it's the right thing to do. So let's just start fighting for the resources to do the right thing. And then instead of walking away every day like a little bit more empty because we didn't have the resources to do the right thing, let's say, hey, this is what I need to do my job right. And so that we can walk away knowing that we did the right thing. What are the most important challenges facing emergency medicine and how do you propose that we address them? So I think there's three things that I'm, I'm hearing. The first and foremost is, is reimbursement. There are a couple really big things going on right now that threaten sort of our, our livelihood and our ability to maintain a safety net. The first is that whenever Congress passes an increase in pay for one specialty, it decreases the pay for somebody else. There's a limited sort of pie. And every time that percentage of work goes up, that relative value unit for another specialty, it impacts everybody else. And for a long time, we've been saying that primary care has been underfunded, and it has. And so the time came last year where they proposed we're going to really increase the work value of primary care in these office and outpatient codes. But the downside to that is that people who don't bill for office and outpatient codes, like emergency medicine, then have to take a, a pretty big pay cut in order to sort of balance that out in sort of these budget neutral requirements. So this would be potentially an 11% cut to Medicare which translates to millions of dollars across the specialty. We've been able to successfully fight that back to 6%, but even that is, is going to be fairly devastating if that goes through. So we are, are fighting that on a national level and trying to look at alternatives to, to save those cuts. The second thing is this whole issue of surprise billing, which I know you've, you've talked about on prior podcasts, but the vast majority of cases, it's not really a surprise bill. It's really surprise coverage of how little their insurance actually covers and it is shocking to me how challenging it is to understand insurance coverage. I spent a huge amount of time with my patients looking at their insurance card and trying to explain what is a deductible? What is a copay? What is coinsurance? Like what is reasonably my out-of-pocket expenses? And even incredibly educated physicians have no idea what they're covered for. And this has been a really a long discussion at a, a national level between the insurers and the physicians of, of how do we determine what is fair payment? But the problem is in emergency medicine is, is two-thirds of our patients don't actually pay the cost of care. So I kind of make this an analogy of if you owned a McDonald's, right, and the government said, well, people are hungry. You just, you have to give them free hamburgers. We don't know how you're going to pay for it. It's going to be a mandate, but we're, it's an unfunded mandate. You just have to figure it out. The only way you could stay in business is you'd have to sort of increase the cost of milkshakes, right, for people who like milkshakes to help offset the cost of those burgers because now you're giving away free hamburgers. The problem is we've gotten to the point now where we've had this cost shifting and people who have private insurance are paying a higher cost to help offset Medicare, Medicaid, 
uninsured individuals, that it's it's no longer sustainable. And the only way we were able to maintain that safety net was because insurers paid a cost of care. They are no longer willing to do that. Um, the government is also unwilling to do that. And so we're sort of at a breaking point of how are we going to continue to fund the safety net. So reimbursement is going to think be a very, very big issue for us in emergency medicine. The second issue is scope of practice, and I think those are sort of integrated because as the cost of care goes up and cuts to emergency medicine are, are really happening left and right, people are looking to say, well, how do we reduce our costs? And our physician labor and workforce is kind of the first thing on the chopping block for a lot of groups and hospitals that are looking to save costs and to save money. And this is, it's a challenge. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that we all play an important role in the healthcare system. But we have to find a place where we have physician-led teams and make sure that we're not compromising patient safety. I personally do not believe in independent practice. I believe in physician-led teams, but I certainly value the, the role of different healthcare providers in our healthcare system. And I think there are ways to do this safely, but I think there's a lot of concern right now on a physician level about numerous states that are pushing independent practice and scope of practice issues. And then I think the third thing really is, is health inequities and recognizing that, you know, especially with COVID, that Black Americans make up 13% of the population, but their fatality rate is more than double that. The clear disparities, you know, affected by their transportation, by health literacy, by food deserts, that they don't have access to the things they need. They're not getting the testing. We're treating patients differently based on really where they're coming from and where they live and how they live. And realizing that racism is not about genetics, it's a systemic problem that impacts their overall health. And as an emergency medicine physician, that we're kind of right in the middle of this, and we need to be the ones to kind of research it to find how we can better address those inequities and disparities in our healthcare system. I think we have a major workforce issue. There are not enough emergency physicians to care for all the patients in this country. And we are going to need to think carefully and thoughtfully about how we expand our capacity to care for patients. And by that, I mean the use of physician extenders. I am a strong proponent of the use of physician extenders and having everyone work at the top of their license. But I also believe that we have an ethical and a moral responsibility as physicians and as specialists in emergency care to train those people to deliver the best care possible. So our responsibility as a discipline is not to try to stave off the implementation or the utilization of nurse practitioners or physician assistants in our discipline. Our responsibility is to train those people so that they provide the highest level of care and they understand where the boundaries of their care delivery paradigm should end and the physicians should begin. I think that's critically important and something that we need to address. I think that we're kind of in a bad spot. And this kind of goes along with what we learned with COVID. We're in a bad spot because we don't really have agency over our own practices. The corporate for-profit interests that have really taken over medicine, they have taken away our voices. We've become employees like COGS, inputs, and we need to really find our agency and find our voice so that we have control over 
what happens in our emergency departments. We need more control over patient care. And the current setup, the corporate structure of medicine is not designed to support that. And so I've thought a lot about this and in, in kind of the context of what happened with COVID. And I think we need a doctor's bill of rights. I think we need to be able to say, hey, I don't have enough PPE. And I think you need to have protections so that no, there can't be any retaliation. So that if I do an interview and say, yeah, I'm a little bit worried that we don't have enough PPE, that I don't get a call from you know, government relations from the hospital saying, hey, can you change that quote? Or you, need, you can't say that. We need to be able to say that. And, and I think we need it for ourselves. And our patients need that. Our patients need us to be able to say, hey, this is wrong. You know, fundamentally, I'd like to change the structure of medicine so that the doctor gets to make the right decisions. But that's a long-term change. One of the most important underlying foundational challenges is that of resource and funding. How do you support services that are so essential when you think about the challenges we face in emergency departments, you know, the crowding? We understand that oftentimes emergency care is not as appropriately resourced as it should be. And I think that will be a, a continuing problem. I think we find a challenge in the funding and support of the essential research into the foundational science of emergency care and emergency medicine. Probably a decade ago or more, I, I don't recall the exact time, there was a bit of a campaign by emergency medicine leaders to federal funding agencies to focus on the advancement of emergency care and, and the science of emergency medicine. That resulted in the development and, the, and I think the establishment of the Office of Emergency Care Research at the NIH, which created a light year leap ahead in terms of being able to create and establish really important clinical trials that will impact outcomes in terms of what we do in emergency medicine, emergency care. The pandemic, all of the other issues, I think, have demonstrated in many ways a need to continue the funding and support of emergency medicine, emergency care research. I think that's a considerable challenge as we move ahead. Healthcare and technology continues to evolve very quickly. And so I think we're going to be challenged in many ways to, to innovate as the healthcare system continues to evolve. And, and that's going to be extraordinarily important for our future. Now that we've heard from all of these big thinkers and leaders in emergency medicine, you know, in many ways, COVID has not changed the principles of emergency medicine that much, but it has highlighted our role a little better for the public, and it's given us an idea of how we are and sometimes aren't supported by the powers that be. You know, Sarah, I think the big difference is how we use PPE. I will never intubate someone without a mask again. <laughs> But in all seriousness, our patients' needs are still very similar. They need consistent, actual access to health care, basic human needs met, health equity addressed, and mental health help. These issues are even more obvious than they were pre-COVID. This pandemic is an opportunity to reevaluate who we are and what role we play in the healthcare system now and in the future. Pulse check. 
COVID has put emergency medicine in the spotlight as a frontline specialty that puts providers at risk to care for anyone, anything, anytime. That is really cool, and we should leverage this goodwill to improve care of our patients. Emergency medicine was born out of a need to be a gatekeeper to the hospital. We have historically provided critical care to all patients. The need has evolved now, and as Dr. Jillian Schmidt said, emergency medicine is uniquely positioned at the intersection of acute care, chronic care, and public health. Dr. Amy Mullen described us as diagnosticians, gatekeepers, safety net providers, and social problem solvers. There are some challenges on the horizon. We need to rethink reimbursement, optimize technology, keep investing in high-quality research, and first and foremost, keep our eyes on the goal, advocating for and providing the care our patients need. I cannot wait for part three on the future of emergency medicine. Yeah, it's going to be awesome, Sarah. We will hear how these same thought leaders predict what emergency medicine will look like in 10 to 15 years. In the meantime, let us know what are the most important challenges facing our specialty and how do you propose to address them? Share Impulse Podcast with your colleagues and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on social media at Impulse Podcast. Okay, I also need to take a moment to make a correction. In the last heartbeat, we are problem solvers with Dr. Rory Stewart. I totally made up an award. The bronze heart. It's not a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Listener Seth respectfully corrected me. And man, do I appreciate that. Rory was actually awarded the bronze star for fighting COVID in Afghanistan. And also he is a lieutenant colonel, not a lieutenant. I apologize to Rory, and he was incredibly understanding. Seth, I appreciate the feedback. Thank you to Amy Mullen and all others in our department who helped define the specialty of emergency medicine. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for all of the hours recording for this one. See you next month. <laughs>